Welcome, everybody. This is Fred Schenkelberg, and today's webinar, Ascendo Reliability webinar, I've lost count. Uh, I was just mentioning off the air that we've got a lot of recordings, <clears throat> and we also syndicate them out or take the audio out and put it into a, a podcast. And there's a lot of them out there. And other than a listing of the titles, there's not a, a convenient way to find these things. So I'm going to spend some time over this holiday break in between cooking and other chores around the house to sort out a way to organize these so they're in some more coherent way of, of being presented and sorted out so people can find the ones that they may have missed. And I think we're well over 100 uh, sessions and uh, Chris has taken this month off because it lands right in between Christmas and New Year's, um, spend time with his family that week. And we're going to uh, kick off again in January with, I think we're going to regularly do two webinars a month. And so that'll just continue to increase our, our count. So a couple months ago, I had this uh, idea uh, and saw um, some information about stories and storytelling. And it dawned on me that we do a lot of storytelling. And for those that regularly attend these webinars, I've heard a good many of these stories. But I thought, you know, this is part of how we create, um, um, well, this is what we do. In large part is influencing other people. And storytelling is a way to do that. So I wanted to dive into it just a little bit to explain this connection that the, um, that's become apparent to me over the last couple of years. If I can get my screen to go. Now, as you know, storytelling has been around as long as that we've been able to communicate. And it, it's a way for us to remember our history. And in, um, as you get together with friends and family, there's often stories that are told uh, about that crazy uncle of yours or uh, this misadventure at one point or this obstacle that was overcome. But we also tell stories about uh, uh, major events in history or in the major storms. And hopefully nobody's been too seriously affected by the, uh, the storms that were going through uh, Kentucky and the Midwest this last weekend. Um, but there's bound to be stories that are going to be told uh, about those events and those families and those regions for quite some time uh, when there's a disaster of some sort. Um, if I mention, um, oh, what was the hurricane that hit um, um, New Orleans? I want to say Sandy, but I think that was a different one. Uh, Katrina, Katrina. Um, you just have to mention that person, that name associated with hurricane. And you probably remember some details about that and the stories and the flooding that occurred there. Um, and that was years and years ago. Now, there's stories like this that go back as far back as we have history. And much of our history is really stories. And it's a way for us to inform each other. Uh, here's what's good and not good. Here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. Here's how to respond to an, uh, an issue or a danger or a problem. And here's what to avoid. Uh, stories may talk about 
how somebody avoided being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger because they heard a twig crack or something like that. The stories allow us to convey information um, different than the, the old dragnet line of uh, the inspector saying, or the detective saying, just the facts. Stories add a way for us to remember the story, the information within the story, because it, it creates a structure for us to actually remember it. It helps us be in that place where that person was or the story is taking place. Now, novels are just stories, but good novels transport you to that time and place of where those characters are uh, going through their, their pages of that book. The method is by connecting it to sights and sounds and tangible sensory experiences, for example, allows you to connect it in multiple places within somebody's memory. And it's a, a way to transfer information that is proven over the millennia to be rather effective. And most importantly, the stories we tell is our culture. This, the fables we tell, the history we tell, the stories and anecdotes from our own experiences and from our family's experiences and our companies and organizations' experiences is what makes up the culture of that organization. Now, I do have to mention that I probably misspelled culture at least once here. For whatever reason, I was transposing the T and L as I was typing it. Um, so I'm going to, in advance, uh, um, claim I'm not sure I caught all of them. But anyway, the culture of an organization in a large extent is the story it tells itself. And that means the people within the organization. Now, many of you have, have seen or heard my stories around the reliability maturity and the, where it comes from is the culture of an organization. And in one regard, if you don't pay attention to the reliability at all, and there's no um, uh, thought about it, and it's always blame the customers if there's a failure, well, that's a culture. And that's the story that's being told within the organization that, that reinforces that's how people like us do what we do. On the other hand, a culture that can, is very mature in the reliability matrix, uh, maturity matrix, um, considers the impact on reliability performance in nearly every decision that's made. And the stories they tell reinforce that reliability is important. And so it's a completely different atmosphere uh, within the organization. And it's simply because of the way we talk about reliability and how we make decisions concerning it. And so that's what I mean uh, by the culture. Now, uh, there's all kinds of different organization styles and ways communications are done and way processes are, are laid out and, and procedures are followed and so on. Yet in general, what gets done is not always what's written down. It's the stories we tell each other, the, what we pay attention to and what we reinforce and what we put in motion with the the questions we ask and the responses and, and the anecdotes and the information that comes back from us, to us or from us. And in aggregate, that creates a culture.
All right. So the basic question I want to get after today is, is storytelling really a part of what we do? <clears throat> and I'm going to make the um, uh, contention um, that it is. And uh, so, but let me jump into a couple of stories. So some of you have heard this one before, is where when I was working at Raychem Corporation, this is years and years ago, I had moved into an R&D engineering role and I was working on measurement systems and process improvements and working with some of the new products and the chemistries in them and stuff like that. And my boss walked in and knew that I was interested in statistics and said, hey, we need to know if this new product is going to last for 20 years. And I said, okay, why? You know, because I had a lot of, I was already working on. And I said, why? He says, well, a, a major customer is going to buy it if there's evidence that it will last for 20 years and still produce enough heat. This was a heating cable. Oh, okay. Um, where is it going to be used? And it was in Northern Italy, uh, and it was going to be installed in bridges, the concrete bridges in the mountains. And with a little sensor that would detect when it was cold enough and wet enough that ice would form and it would warm the bridge up and prevent ice from forming on the bridge. So I thought, great, I get to go to uh, Italy for 20 years and run this experiment and make these measurements. And he goes, no, 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 you don't get to go to Italy. Um, we need an answer in six months. And so very quickly, I went to the library, which is what I typically would do if I don't know something, or now it's go online, but essentially go to the library and learned about accelerated life testing. Um, the result of that study ended up being my first technical paper, but it also became my first uh, uh, experience with the internet. It was before browsers, well before Google. And I was on some forums that were discussing these technical issues and statistics. And somebody recommended I get a hold of this professor up in Canada. And we ended up co-authoring a, a technical paper together. And he immensely helped me <laughs> in understanding the data I was getting, because the assumption was, is that it would degrade um, in the resistivity in a nice straight line. But the data didn't come out in a nice straight line. And so we needed a different way to analyze it. And so part of it was, is, is there was a lot of resources out there beyond the library and the internet was just getting started and very quickly realized the value of that. But uh, ended up getting a good project. Uh, the accelerated testing went well. We were able to prove uh, and show enough evidence that it would last for the 20 plus years. And I'll have to ask if Carl is on the line, if the bridges in Northern, in the mountains uh, are, are dry compared to the rest of the roads, which may be covered in snow and ice. That uh, being a uh, testament to that product actually worked. Now, Another story many of you may have heard, and this is one where I, I usually talk about it when I'm talking about the reliability maturity matrix and the different levels of maturity. And it, it turned out that I was 
doing a bunch of uh, program assessments, reliability program assessments across HP. And I would go to a site and it would schedule interviews with these different organizations. And, and it turned out that two organizations that made a very similar product um, worked in the same building and one was upstairs and one was downstairs. And they were both relatively small teams. And the gist of the story is, is that when I was downstairs, it was like this fire. It was a raging inferno that was chaotic. The, um, the, the plants were all dead, the few that were there. Uh, the coffee was bad. Uh, the meetings were started late and were often interrupted due to some air quotes here, customer emergency. And I, whenever I asked about, well, who, how do you do uh, derating or halt testing or uh, reviews or, or anything related to reliability, and he says, oh, well, Philip used to do that. Phil used to do that. Um, but he's not here anymore. So nobody does it. Now, upstairs, I thoroughly enjoyed walking upstairs because I had alternating meetings. It seemed like I'd be one or two meetings and downstairs and then go upstairs and vice versa for two days. Going upstairs quickly became a calming phenomena. There were beautiful plants. It was quiet. There was a hum of efficiency. People were getting their work done and doing and, and not rattled. The phones weren't ringing off the hook with angry customers. The meeting started on time. They uh, were never interrupted. And everybody I talked to knew what derating was or who did it, how to do testing, when it was applied, how do we, what's the goal of the, of the products that we're trying to make, why that was important, how it connected to business. I talked, anybody I talked to, and none of them were reliability professionals. Their reliability engineer, Ma Bell, had left two years prior. Now downstairs, Phil left, and he left with the entire program. He had, did, he had done everything himself, and not very well, uh, and not very influential, and left uh, out of frustration is what I was told. Ma Bell left because she worked herself out of a job. The team was so good at what they were doing, there was little left for her to do. So she said, well, I'm going to go find another challenge, another organization, and bring them up to speed. And so she left and was very successful, was recognized uh, and, and rewarded as one of the a brilliant engineer that worked across many different organizations and made a, an impact on how well they made their products and then left them in a much better state than when she got there. Then I had to go back downstairs and, and I enjoyed the trip back upstairs and stayed in touch with that team as long as I could to learn as much as I could about how they did what they did and how they kept it going and learned a lot from the folks upstairs. Downstairs is kind of a disaster and helped them find some more resources so they could uh, actually improve their program. So the upstairs downstairs showed me that it wasn't the product you're working on or the technology or anything else. It was how the culture influenced the decisions they were making, how they went about considering reliability 
in their everyday decisions. And that was just one of many things that came out of that experience. And it was literally up and down a, a set of stairs at the end of this building where the teams were located, just one on the first floor or the other on the second floor. And it was an amazing uh, experience. Now, one more story, and then I'll get into some, some questions for you. So and this is back when I was working at Hewlett Packard and I was at a corporate group and, and basically putting together and managing the reliability program at the corporate level. And so we did, we had a email list for questions and answer kind of a discussion forum. We had webinars, much like I do now. Uh, we had a newsletter, uh, much like I have now. Um, and we also provided training. We helped put together guidelines and guidance documents and internal um, best practices, things like that. Um, so we were recognized as the corporate reliability team. And we got to work with all kinds of products and all kinds of systems all across the organization, plus suppliers. So it was a lot of fun. So one Friday afternoon, just you know, late in the afternoon, I don't know why you always get these calls on a afternoon, on a Friday afternoon. But Carol called and introduced herself as a sales engineer that was going into a major meeting on the next day on Saturday to explain to this large company why they should accept the rest of their shipments of a very large order of electronics gear from Hewlett Packard from various groups and divisions. When the first shipment they received of 10 laptops, uh, six of them were at broken screens. And I said, you know, Carol, I'm not really the person that deals with, you know, broken screens or, you know, but I, I know the people in the in the laptop group, I, and he says, I already talked to them. We're, we've, you know, I've got new ones on the way. They, they're doing the troubleshooting. They're doing all the right things to sort this out. But it was unfortunate that the first shipment was so bad. And so the people that controlled that purchase um, were going to pull out. And they, she convinced them to have a, a meeting for her to explain why they should continue with this multi-million dollar um, uh, set of purchases they were doing. And she was looking for what's the culture in our HP? How can she point to what we do that makes it possible for us to create reliable products? And what makes the HP printers so solid, the HP calculators, the test and measurement equipment, things like that. What is it about the way we go about creating those products that enables us to do what we do. And so we talked about the uh, Bill and, and Dave's philosophy of the build test fix of, of, you know, find the failures in your early proto prototypes and fix those and make them more robust, uh, paying attention to guidelines and making things as uh, using redundancy when we're called for, using uh, best practices and, and sharing that knowledge across the organization on a regular basis and things like that. And things that we created in guidelines and best practices. And we went over a bunch of these details for maybe 20 minutes or so. And then she said in a very soft voice, 
And I wasn't even sure she was talking to me. I really, I really don't think she was. She said, I can't do this anymore. Excuse me? I, I, I didn't quite catch that. And she said, I'm not sure I can do this anymore. What do you mean? And, and there was this resignation in her voice. And she says, I can't risk my reputation by suggesting to my people I'm trying to convince to buy our products that trust us, they're reliable. When she said, when today that rug was pulled out from under me, she says, it's my reputation and I'm not gonna risk that anymore. And as far as I know, she left the company a couple months later. I don't know the details of whether she convinced this company to go ahead with the purchase or not. I never did follow up with that. But her connection of her uh, reputation to the reliability of our products, that has stuck with me. All right, those are just three stories. It takes a few minutes to tell each one of them. What did they have in common? What did you hear or see or notice about these things? Probably never saw them in a children's book. Now, for folks that have been uh, attending these on a regular basis, you've probably heard variations of these stories uh, and probably even very, very similar ones of these stories. Um, but these stories are all from my own experience. These, these things actually happen. I think I've changed Carol's name a number of times because right from the start, I used somebody else's name, um, but it, she... Um, did call on a Friday afternoon and did say, I can't do this anymore. And I really did want to go to Northern Italy for 20 years to see if our products work. Um, and that, that hope got dashed and somehow then ended up learning reliability engineering, accelerated testing, and got to start a whole career around that. The, the idea is that the, these are just stories, right? They're, there's relating some history. Um, they're pieces of that. Yet hopefully you can see or hear or, or sense that there's more to it than just an interesting story or I'm maybe being a little uh, presumptuous and saying they're interesting, but the idea is that they're just stories, right? But they're about reliability, one aspect or another. Um, they had underlying uh, elements or pieces that depending on the context, they may have come across as a, in a different way. And, and also depending on where you are and what, what challenges you're facing, and they, you may have picked up on different things. So, um, but let's go into a little bit more about the concept of storytelling. 
And basically it's a practice. Um, it's something that you can learn. And most of us tell stories pretty effortlessly most of the time. Jokes are harder um, to do, uh, but stories are pretty natural. Uh, yet there are things you can and, can and can do to improve your ability to tell a story. And, and one of them is, is that it's it, the idea of which stories you tell and, and when, we'll talk about it in a second on timing, but the, which stories you tell um, make a difference, right? And one of the underlying pieces of this is that if every time we walk into a meeting, we're telling everybody about how their product's gonna catch on fire and just burn down and it's gonna kill everybody, it'll never work. And we have too many failure mechanisms. Now it may be true that there's lots that need to be improved. But if every time you show up, you're a downer, you're talking about how bad it is, and you don't have any solutions, you don't have any concepts or ideas or, or suggestions on how to make it better, or how to even start making it better. If you're not doing failure analysis, if you're not doing process improvement, if you're not doing all these other things, well, we're just the bearer of bad news. And that will not be heard very, very quickly. And so there is a time and place to say, hey, the emperor has no clothes, right? This is not right. We need to fix this. Yet if it has to be connected with, and I often recommend is the story you should, should tell is overcoming an obstacle or um, the elements of learning, of growing, of facing challenges and moving forward, of the connection to business of the, the value of the reliability activities and how it makes a difference in other people's worlds. Um, if you're in a, a, a young or a company that has a, a typical maturity, uh, maturity level two or three, where you're mostly reacting to problems, maybe the stories would be, should be about how one of the individuals in your team actually recognized and prevented a major problem from occurring. Talking about stories about being proactive and telling that story and celebrating that story, it allows you to set a, a marker that we can be doing this better. We don't have to always be reacting to problems. But it's a very deliberate selection of a story to move the discussion within the organization, to change the culture, to move it towards a better place. And by telling success stories, by, by telling of opportunities for change and improvement, it makes changing, getting there actually a lot easier. So pick stories and, and reinforce elements of the experiences and stories that you run across that help you move the organization uh, into a, a higher maturity on the matrix that that reliability is is see, naturally seen as important and considered appropriately and so and, and and when you tell a story and how you tell it it's is as much depends on the the other who's listening to you and what, where they're at and how much time they have and all those other parts. We'll get into timing in a second, which is very, very important. Um, but I have found that telling stories from your own experience or 
you're witness somebody else's series of events or decisions that it makes it easier for you to tell the story because you can fill in the details like the plants difference in the plants upstairs and downstairs you know downstairs they had really bad coffee and he says what do i do this and he goes pour it in the in the fern over there well, the fern looks pretty dead well i think it needs water and so apparently they've been pouring this acidic coffee into it for years and it promptly killed them upstairs they actually took care of their plants and they they had time to and they had really good coffee which they did not give to their plants tiny they couldn't wait to get to this one in a webinar i take the liberty of, of telling many many different stories and some of the stories similar stories over and over again. So I know some of you have heard many of them that I've told over the years. But if you're in a staff meeting, and and I had a boss like this once, uh, halfway through the meeting goes, oh, that reminds me. And the pattern was, was that it'd be a 25 minute story about something he did when he was lieutenant that had um, wasn't funny, wasn't educational. And we all had other much we had other things to go do. Um, now, there may have been a point to his stories, or there may have been some information there that would have been useful, but it usually started with, oh, that reminds me of, and then before ever kind of concluding that story and wrapping it up, they go, oh, then there was this time, and it would take off on tangents and run down rabbit holes and go, what was I talking about? And 20, 25 minutes later, we didn't know what story he was telling us anymore. And so part of it is having permission. And sometimes your stories are gonna get two sentences, that's it. And sometimes you're gonna have permission and, and allowed to, to ramble a bit more, but it's a gift that your audience is giving you to have the ability for them, their willingness to listen. And so treat that with respect. And well, you heard it in the last story I told, the pause. The first time I told that story and, and, and related that effect, it was in a, in a, in a meeting uh, with some oil uh, or exploration teams from three different companies. And we're, a whole group of us were being introduced. I think there were 10 different consultancies being introduced to these three companies. And we each got 20 minutes, 30 minutes to say who we were and what we did and stuff like that. So I started with this story. And when I paused, all 35 people in the audience, including the other consultants, all leaned forward. And the best thing I said in the entire story was the pause. So the pacing, the timing, your voice modulation, um, great storytellers um, can paint a picture, picture with their words. And it's not just word choice, it's also pacing. And so that's the part that you can practice. That's the part you can get feedback. And when I say practice, I really mean deliberate practice. If you know that you have an opportunity to tell a story uh, or you're uh, impromptu habit. If somebody in that audience is somebody you trust and to give you honest feedback, ask them to. 
and what worked, what didn't work, you know, tell them I was trying to uh, use a pause for effect to that work or what could I have done different or how did it come across or just get feedback. Practicing in the mirror is great. It's a start practice with somebody that's, uh, you know, a, a partner or a friend uh, that's outside of work that's safe for you to practice with. It's great. Have a live audience. But practice with somebody that's getting the feedback from somebody that you trust to give you honest feedback from within your audience that you want to influence is best. And make it very deliberate. Ask people to, to give you feedback and then make adjustments. Hear what they're saying and, and change what you're doing. And there's plenty of courses about uh, public speaking and, and storytelling and all those kinds of things. And there's lots and lots of literature and courses and stuff out there available. And in my career, I've had the opportunity to, to enjoy some of those. Time will tell if it was useful or not. Another thing, and I'm not always good at this one, and I noticed it when I was telling the stories. Sometimes I point out the point. And sometimes, especially when you're live in front of somebody and you can see the light bulb come on, oh, I get this. You're done. Stop. You don't need to put a moral at the end of the fable. Um, you don't always have to sum it up. If you've seen the audience and they look confused, well, then you may tie in, connect it, um, and and wrap it up and say, and this is what I learned, or this is what I took away from it, or something like that. But most of the time, if the story conveys the point well enough, you don't have to say it. And that's hard. I, I think I've read too many uh, fables that tend to make it very obvious. Um, and the idea, though, is in good storytelling, like in a good novel or like in a good essay, they don't have to sum it up in the last sentence what the idea was. It would, would be obvious. And that really does take practice. That really does take understanding, a, one, the story, what is it you're actually trying to convey, and then how well is your audience getting it? And that takes practice, deliberate practice uh, to, to get good at that. All right. So do you have a favorite story, uh, reliability or not reliability? I'm gonna take a moment to get a sip of water here. see. I think my chat window is still updating. Not seeing anything there. It, and it may be one that you tell on regular occasion. It may be uh, something you've told coming out of a course or, or a lesson or customer experience or wherever. It, it may be ones that you've heard. 
um, I'd be happy if it was one of the stories I got to tell you. Um, but it's, it's which ones have made a difference on the audience you're trying to influence. Those really should be your favorite stories. Those were the ones that make a difference. You know, you, what you did Saturday night, standing around the water cooler and on Monday morning, when and if ever we get back to offices, um, might be a great story. Yet, will it change the culture of the way we build reliable products? Probably not. Will it build camaraderie? Yes, and you can make an argument that's useful. Yet, you have the opportunity um, to tell stories that actually help influence the organization. And so I tend to, to really be deliberate. And this comes from way back. And I think I've got it coming up in a slide here. Um, and, or maybe I, let me see if I do. Get my thing to move forward here. Yeah. Um, and this is one, and it, it came from, I used to be a, um, uh, a, a stick boy uh, for a hockey team. I was in high school and we had a semi-pro hockey team in, the, in town that my parents were associated with in volunteering for. So I got roped in to sitting on the bench and handing out, you know, somebody break a stick, I'd give them their, their hockey stick or I'd cut oranges for the breaks. I, I mean, I was kind of the, the gopher, you know, go for this, go for that kind of stuff. And it was a great experience. Now, the marketing guy that traveled with us also, he would sit in the front of the bus and he would tell one bad joke after another, after another. Um, but anytime like I'd have lunch with him or dinner with him on occasion, and, and we were just at a big team meeting or dinners and lunches usually, and he would tell stories about customer service, about the great service he got at this hotel or the great experience he had with, with this when he called a customer service support or he took a product back, or he would talk about like five or six stories in a row about great customer service. And it dawned on me one time and I asked him, are you, are you doing that on purpose? Are you talking about getting great customer service, especially when we're sitting at a table with, you know, the, the marketing manager for the opposing team or from one of the league representatives or somebody, he would tell, depending on who we're sitting with, he would tell a series of stories that almost always had a very similar point to them and usually related to the response he was trying to get from them in great customer service, for example. And, and he said, yes, of course I do. The stories we tell set the frame of how we make decisions. They set the frame of how we make considerations. They also convey what are, is my expectation, right? And he said, if, if I, had just come out of a horrible hotel that had horrible service and, and everything else, and they just complained about it, that sets a different framework or mood for the conversation that uh, I'm engaging with this person on. But if I talk about an experience with a hotel that had a great customer experience, they were just perfect in every respect, that conveys a different framework of what we're going to talk about it in the rest of the conversation. And so he was, 
very deliberate about it. And, and so I've remembered that over the years is that if we want to influence the decisions that the rest of the team is making about reliability, well, let's tell stories about how a decision saved us gazillions of dollars or how a decision averted a major problem or how a decision um, provided a framework for how to make good decisions related to reliability and, and get the outcomes we're looking for. If we have a, a series of, of instances or encounters or anecdotes that relate to the positive spin that making decisions concerning reliability uh, and making it so that we achieve our reliability goals and all of the benefits that come from that, it gets the point across much more effectively than saying, thou shalt consider reliability when making a decision. You can put that on paper or on a plaque or on, a, on the wall, you can put it in a banner. It just won't be effective. But telling 30 or 40 different stories that all point to the same thing, it gets the point across. And you know you're successful when those stories or variations of those stories are being retold. And it then becomes, oh, we need to think about reliability when we're deciding about vendor selection or component placement or how we're going to manufacture it or whatever. Those all make a difference to reliability. But once it becomes part of the conversation, part of the story we tell ourselves, and you can influence that, it improves the ability for the, of the organization to be aware of and consider reliability when making decisions. So it's one, one way to go at it. Another one is, and this one came home to me when um, it, it dawned on me, I think I was in a, oh, I'm drawing a blank on his name, it was the fifth discipline book and it was about organiza organizational learning. And the, I, one of the lines in there, or maybe it was, uh, it was a business book from the eighties, essentially, and early nineties. And one of the lines and it stuck with me is that, you know, a good experience or a good review from a customer, a five-star review, um, is great. Somebody had a good experience and they're going to go out of their way to give you feedback and to recognize that. Whereas it takes, it, it, but it's much, much easier for somebody to complain, to provide a poor review or, or to give you one star. They're upset and it's a way for them to vent or to convey their frustration with your product or customer service or whatever. And one of the things that stuck with me is that the damage to the reputation of your organization is five times more powerful for a negative review, somebody being upset with your product. They'll tell, I think it was in the context of that, this is before Amazon and, and uh, uh, Yelp and all these other review systems and forums that are online, but a disgruntled customer will tell five people a happy customer, customer may tell one. And the effect was is that the, the negative results of product not working, like those cracked laptops uh, screens, um, is much more damaging to your reputation 
um, by magnitude, by how many other people hear about it and get that story told to them than the customers that have a good experience. They don't tell as many people. And apparently this is something out of marketing and out of human nature, but it's something to keep in mind is that the end of the day, independent of whatever we set up as the targets or objectives or goals for our reliability of our programs or systems, the customers are going to be the ones that arbitrate that. They're going to decide, did you hit it or not? And the stories the customers tell, and it's from their point of view, is, is a reflection of what's the customer's expectation. What is it that they are experiencing in relation to what they expected to experience? And that often defines what they consider is, is this a reliable product or not? And the stronger the reputation of your system is, the product, your products are, that they are reliable, that just ratchets up that expectation that the product that they get tomorrow will also be reliable. And so listening to customers, getting opportunities to interact with customers. If you have a product that's in the consumer space and it's being sold at a store, if you ever watch somebody shopping for your product and ask them if they have any questions. Um, if sometimes uh, people get involved with call centers and can listen in to what customers are calling about, what kinds of questions they're having and what kind of problems they're having. It's a great way to actually hear your customers and, and get a sense of where their expectations were. But also it's the stories that come out of what they, what customers tell other people in online forums and review centers and review systems and stuff like that is one way to capture some of those. There's many other ways that and you should explore a number of different venues to get this information. But retelling those customer stories, customer focused stories, reinforces the concept that we're building a reliable product not to get 98% reliable over two years, yada, 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 and with X amount of profitability. The customers really don't care about that. I want a watch that tells time and does it over a long period of time. I want a reliable device. Reliable in my definition. And by reinforcing that the goals and markers that we set internally are, are just that, goals and markers. There are attempt to quantify what we think customers want. Well, that doesn't mean that we stop listening to customers. And so telling stories and anecdotes and experiences with customers from their point of view is a way of reinforcing the importance of reliability and its performance to the customers, not just to our spreadsheet. And so it's a, a way to find a, a source of stories and a focus to, to talk about. And then the stories we tell and as I mentioned early on, is they create the culture within our organization. So by you know, picking customer stories or, or service, customer service type stories or um, decision related stories or how we learn from testing, make improvements or how we can 
each failure is, is, is gold and we should learn from it or continuous learning or what sequence the types of information or what kind of nudge do you want to give the organization that you work with so that they improve their ability to create a, a reliable product for your customers. And it, it's all dependent on where your organization is and what's the, the span of control or influence uh, that what's the culture around reliability, you know, is it completely ignored or is it built into the fabric of everything you do? But by deliberately picking a sequence of stories, whether it's recounting successes of people making great decisions or recounting uh, how customers use our products outside of the ways we would expect it, uh, whether it led to a failure or not, but it conveys that there's a, maybe there's a different set of expectations out there than what we think it should be, or it could be something else. But by being very deliberate about that and having the two sentence stories or the antidote or the right question or the prompts so that other people invoke questions or stories that they know um, that bring on the same concept. Um, by being very deliberate about it, you have the opportunity to set in motion a, a way to actually change the culture of the organization. Now, it's not just one training event, it's not just one webinar, it's not just one document. It's the sequence of stories that are told within the organization and retold. And, and that's how you change the culture, at least in my opinion. And, and that's to a large extent is why, what, how we convey information such that it's memorable and, and, and relatable is what makes storytelling so powerful in what we do is in a reliability world. Sure, we can run this stress strength calculations and we can do an accelerated life test and create a physics of failure model and run out some calculations. But if nobody really sees how those tools interact and help us make decisions, um, we've got a handful of great tools, yet we have no influence. But by telling the story about how those things work and why they're important to the business and to customers, that's a story. And, and it allows us then to connect uh, the why we use the various tools we use to why we should use those tools or how or why they are of value. And, and actually work for us. And so that's the gist of these, uh, um, I guess I'm saying the point is what I was talking about early on is you don't always have to if it comes across, but it's a habit I have and I'm still working on it. So I think that's the end of my slides a little bit early, but uh, I mean, you probably already do tell stories and so you should have a few of them in mind anytime you have an encounter or opportunity when you have permission to tell it. And the bottom line is, yeah, you can do it. So with that, I'll 
leave enough room here so that those that need to take a quick break before their next Zoom meeting can get off and go do that. Uh, and if you've got questions or comments or thoughts or whatever, um, or even ideas for future webinars, I'll stay on the line and uh, we'll, um, as long as you're around to ask questions, I'll stick around. And I'm trying to think, yep, I still have the recording going. So, and I've drawn a complete blank, what I've got scheduled for um, for next month. And I haven't seen Chris uh, 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 Jackson's one for next month. So I'll see how, um, uh, I'll have to check with him, see what, get it up on the calendar for, for his January one. Um, so I did get to see a question from Larry here. Hey, Larry, glad you made it. Um, how do you incorporate statistics in the stories? I actually did that the other day in a podcast. I was giving Kirk a hard time and I was telling him that if he actually applied himself and, and took some stats classes, he had a 38% chance of actually um, becoming a great statistician. And he, he, you know, he's like, what? <laughs> he says, yeah, you'd get that if you were really a statistician. Um, sometimes I use jokes with statistics, um, but the, well, like the, my very first project was, we had a uh, accelerated, it was a degradation model and we had three different stresses. And the expectation was that the repeated measures of these systems would show a steady a straight line degradation. Now, it often wasn't a straight line and we ran the test long enough that we actually saw it taper off. It, it kind of fell uh, at a reasonable rate and then it slowed down and tapered off. And what most people had done is says, well, it's getting outside being straight anymore. So I'm done with the analysis. I'm gonna take this part early on in the test that has the straight section of it and I'll only use that. And so our estimates from those models is very conservative. And it would have never got to 20 years with this product. Most of our products were expected to last five years in industrial settings. And so by using the straight line assumption um, in the models that supported that, um, it, it was fine. It was conservative. Our products lasted much longer in practice in the field than what we were estimating. So nobody was really complaining. But here we had a story where we had to show that it went 20 years. And in order for the model to be effective, as you know, you have to run those tests and evaluations and measurements as long as you possibly can. And under the accelerated conditions, we wanted to go well beyond equivalent of 20 years of experience. And it was obviously curved. And so the assumption of these straight line models that we were using was just not going to be effective. It wasn't going to reflect the what was happening with the product. Physically, what happened was the product, it was a polymer system and it would oxidize, but the oxidation slowed the amount of oxygen that could get into the interior of the bulk of the product. And so it would create this uh, oxygen barrier basically around the outside. And it would do enough of the depth that it would change the resistivity. But as the oxygen got thwarted from getting inside, the changes slowed down. 
So we knew the physical phenomena that occurred. And then we, that's when I went looking for somebody that knew more about statistics than I did to help me figure out a, a process to model those curvatures. And that was the source of that first technical paper. So there's a story for you, incorporating stats into it. And I, I don't know how many times I've said it here, is always challenge your assumptions. The statistics is built on a lot of assumptions. And so we got to challenge that, which I suspect you would appreciate. Yeah, Larry, I'm surprised you're here. Usually you're off at some uh, practice of some sort for music that you make. And this time of year, I imagine you guys are got to be playing somewhere. All right. Looks like a handful of folks are heading out. So let me go ahead and close out the recording. Thanks for attending and have a great rest of your December or just this Tuesday or whatever day that you're actually listening to it, if it's a recording. But we'll see you next month for another webinar.